Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? Stephen Levy, perhaps the authoritative voice on contemporary technology in Silicon Valley. New book, Stephen. Facebook, the inside story. You're the guy who really got the inside story on Facebook. You even went around to Mark Zuckerberg's parents to get the inside story on Zuckerberg. What, briefly, in less than two minutes, is the inside story about Facebook? It's um, an epic tale about how not only Facebook, but tech itself can grow and get out of control. So I follow Facebook from the dorm room to where we are now, um, looking at how the decisions they made before anyone was watching turned out to be incredibly impactful, not always in a great way, on the rest of us. And people think that it's the last three years that Facebook ran into trouble, but I track how in 2006, in 2009, in 2012, decisions were made to affect us all um, from Mark Zuckerberg uh, that uh, had troubling consequences for Facebook and the rest of us. So it's a moral story, a parable. It is. It's the parable of tech of our time, I think. And what's the parable of, uh, of, of flying too close to the sun, of being too greedy? That's right. You know, I mean, it's you know, massive scale leads to, at first, a, a, a rush of optimism that so many people are touched by us. We must be transforming the world for the better. But then disturbing consequences come out from this unprecedented act that makes people think, well, maybe they went too fast. Is Facebook evil? I don't think so. I don't think evil is the way I describe it. I'd say reckless. Well, what's the difference between reckless and evil? Evil means that you know the consequences of what you're planning to do. You know that people are going to be hurt, and you do it anyway. Reckless is, I don't want to know the consequences. I, you know, this is what's important. We're just going to do this and uh, fix it later. And the people who get hurt in the interim uh, aren't really taking under consideration. But the... The metaphor of reckless, if you use that for driving, for example, a, a reckless driver kills people. So there are essentially But it doesn't evil. intend to kill people. An evil person, well, an evil driver, will see you and say, I'm going to knock this person down. <laughs> yeah, but Stephen, you know that. I live in New York City. There's evil drivers. Well, it's one thing to actually go around trying to knock people over. But if you're a reckless driver and the consequences of your behavior results in death, then isn't that, in a sense, evil? Well, I mean, that's certainly a culpability that comes from recklessness. 
but it's not the same as evil. So, so, so what have they done that's so reckless? Is it this, what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism? Are they watching us all the time? And have they, have they sold our souls to advertising companies? Well, I think a different example might be the velocity of their growth. The, at a certain point, growth became the consuming desire uh, of, of Zuckerberg. There was a, a group inside the company that tried all kinds of tricks to pump up the growth to grow as big as possible, as fast as possible. And no one really gave a lot of thought uh, to what happened when you, you did grow so fast and you spread Facebook to countries that weren't used to giving people a voice and uh, allow people to put things online and uh, while the company had no one who spoke the language that the, the company was spreading to. So these are countries like Philippines, for example. Philippines, which, Myanmar. So their whole... It took a long time for Facebook to have anyone who knew how to speak Burmese. So, so, so what you're saying is that the recklessness was an unwillingness to be accountable for the consequences of their success in, in, in cultures and countries that they knew very little about. Again, it wasn't even so much an unwillingness as a thoughtlessness. You know, it wasn't that uh, they were demanding, you know, that they were required to do something and they were unwilling to do it. It's just the, they had an open uh, field and they, and, and they took it. Now, on the other hand, people inside the company were making warnings. They were warning them, hey, if you do this, we might run into trouble. And the culture of Facebook is do it first and apologize later. So it's break, move, move fast and break things, essentially. That's right. That's right. That was, that was part of, of the culture, you know, officially. You know, you would, at a certain time, you would go to a, a company and there will be all these posters over the wall saying this. I actually write about uh, a group in Facebook called the um, Analog uh, you know, uh, Research, I think. Is it? Is it um, uh, there's a group inside Facebook that silkscreen posters. Anyone can go and make posters. And, you know, they put these posters, like old propaganda posters. Uh, on the walls there, of course, one of them was move fast and break things. And, you know, these were the, the, the values handed down from the great leader that, you know, were the people looked at every day and followed. Stephen, you spent a lot of time on this book. You're an incredibly meticulous writer. The book's over 500 pages. You spent time with Mark Zuckerberg, with Sheryl Sandberg, with all the leading uh, executives at the company. As I said, you spent some time even with Zuckerberg's parents. Isn't there some accountability here? Didn't the buck stop with Zuckerberg? Totally, totally. That, that's, if you get to know Facebook, you have to understand that all the top decisions come down to one person. And it happens to be the person who has control of the stock and can overrule anyone. Early on in his career, he learned that he could make decisions and adjust if they were wrong. And, uh, and sometimes he would make decisions and people would push back on him and say, you're wrong, that's not going to work. And those things worked. So he almost took resistance as a sign that he was on the right track. And you've told, you, you, you say in the book that um, this came out of his rearing, out of his family culture. He behaved like this as, as an adolescent as well. He, you know, managing Facebook so autocratically 
uh, was something that he practiced as a child almost. Well, he, it certainly was the case. He was a very strong-willed child, and his parents uh, acceded to what he wanted to do. Um, I tell a story that came from his parents that um, he was halfway through high school, and he realized he didn't want to be at his public high school. They didn't offer enough computer courses. Um, he might have trouble getting into the school he wanted to get into because there weren't enough advanced placement courses. So he wanted to go to a private school. And his parents very much wanted him to go to the nearby private school, a very elite school for his man. But um, he had his heart set on going to Phillips Exeter, you know, which he had heard would be a, a good place for him. And it was a boarding school. His mother didn't want him to go. Um, she wanted to send him to an interview with Horace Mann. He said, I'll go to the interview, but I'm going to, to Phillips. Phillips, up, Phillips Exeter. And he did. So you tell this story, and to some people perhaps it might seem cute. You've told similar stories about Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google in your Google book, and of course about uh, Steve Jobs. But ultimately, you're suggesting that this story isn't that cute because the consequences of all this uh, sort of tendency... I guess, to autocracy, to controlling everything, uh, has had a bad impact on the world. Well, I'm, I'm not endorsing autocracy, uh, but he, he makes his, his decisions. He, he's a very careful listener. He'll get all different points of view before he makes his own personal uh, is this decisions. A pro, Stephen, is this a problem with the architecture, the financial corporate architecture of Silicon Valley companies that a guy like Zuckerberg simply has too much power because he controls so much of the stock and he controls the board? Well, definitely. One, one problem is that uh, you know, it was Larry and Sergey at Google who brought that model, which they borrowed from the Washington Post and Berkshire Hathaway, to uh, tech, you know, where founders would have control uh, over the board. And uh, that's part of it. And I think the, the huge financial rewards that come from the way we constructed our system are part of it as well. Do you think that he has learned from his mistakes? This, if, if he was here with us talking, would he acknowledge your analysis or would he simply say uh, that um, he knows best, Zook knows best? I think he, he probably wouldn't uh, endorse the idea uh, the the stock structure uh, is something flawed. It gives him too much power. Um, I think he does acknowledge. He has acknowledged me. We've had some pretty frank conversations, uh, particularly you know, in the last few months of my research. Um, he's acknowledged that he's made some pretty serious mistakes. How does he? But 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 he also uh, says that basically he wouldn't change his approach that he has to move fast and make big decisions in order for Facebook to continue being competitive. Today's episode is brought to you by Blinkist. Let me tell you about the most useful app on my phone. It's hard to find the time to sit down to read and learn more. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. There's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist 
takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Successful people, like business leaders, are well known for reading a lot of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you, who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or your lunch break or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists, as well as the classic non-fiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. I like Blinkist because it makes me both smarter and more articulate. I like Blinkist because it helps me get the key takeaways of a book in only 15 minutes so I can incorporate those learnings into my life immediately. I use Blinkist when I'm at the gym. I've read and listened to The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss and Saving Capitalism by Robert Reich. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Keenon. Try it free for seven days and save 25% of your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Keenon to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Keen On. Now, back to the show. So, uh, Stephen, you went over to Zuckerberg's house, his mansion in, 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 in the San Francisco Bay. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a mansion. Actually, it's a, it's a nice home, but okay. not, not, not uh, one of the... like. One of the top six okay. richest people in the world would have. Well, anyway, a nice home. Certainly, uh, certainly nice, comfortable. Yeah, like, oh, like a hundred millionaire. I know. He didn't home. even offer you a Diet Coke. He offered you water, right? I, maybe I didn't ask for a Diet Coke. But, <laughs> it uh, didn't offer yeah, you a cup of tea? I had to have the water. Um, but when he, uh, and I'm, uh, this is my word and you may be uncomfortable, when he confesses his mistakes, how mm. does he do it? Now, how did he do it? Well, again, I don't, I don't know. I, I, with but you, you've acknowledged that he, he, he recognized to you that he's made some serious errors. Uh, well, I, in discussing it and talking about Facebook's decisions, 
he did say that you know that, that he made errors, and particularly one I'm thinking of is you know a, a crucial uh, decision he made when Cheryl Sandberg came onto the company to basically split the organization of the company in two. That Cheryl would have domain over basically everything Mark wasn't too terribly interested in. Uh, he would be in charge of the engineering, he would be in part of the charge of the products, and Cheryl would be in part of the things that he wasn't so interested in, like sales or policy, uh, and that would be Cheryl's world. And, and that turned out to bite back when some of the most serious problems in Facebook turned out to be in that policy realm. Uh, Stephen, there'll be some people listening to this, women in particular, whose ears will pick up and say, Mark is blaming everything on a woman. Well, I don't think he... Well, I asked him directly if he, if he felt that Cheryl let him down. Actually, what used, did he say? I used his exact words. Well, I got a few minutes of silence. So he said basically yes. No, no. And then, then he <laughs> said... Then he, he actually took some of the responsibility himself. And then... Uh, and doesn't this reflect the, the sort of the problematic status of women in Silicon Valley? That uh, he should be the one taking responsibility, as, as you said. Well, he didn't. He didn't. He, he, he didn't. He, 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 no, he, he didn't kick Cheryl under the bus. And, you know, um, and privately, my suspicion is uh, there was a moment that he might he might have been tough on her. You spent a lot of time with Cheryl too. Yes. Some people, uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, who's appeared on this show, have argued that um, uh, Cheryl imported what she would call as the sort of the evil surveillance capitalist business model from Google into Facebook. Uh, how culpable do you think Sandberg is for not just the mistakes that Facebook has made, but for their business model? I think she refined the business model, but I, uh, I found that they were going in that direction anyway. They, uh, Facebook was uh, doing micro-targeting before Cheryl got there. Now, Cheryl brought it to a very high level of sophistication, but I think you can't pin all that on Cheryl. And what's her take? Is she angry, upset? Does she feel let down? Does she realize, did you tell her that Zuckerberg essentially blames her for some of no, these things? Well, I'm not saying that, that, that Zuckerberg blames her. Um, well, you suggested think, that the silence after the question indicated that Well, he was think, trying to think, you know, Think how to answer that. I, 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 I'm a careful reporter. I'm not going to take a silence for a yes or a no, especially when there's a, <laughs> an answer appended to the silence. It could be he was just gathering his thoughts. Uh, and it's not unusual for Mark Zuckerberg to go dark on you in the middle of a conversation. What's he like then, Zuckerberg? Is he the social network caricature or is he more complicated than that? I think he's much more complicated uh, than, you know, the... You know, the Jesse Eisenberg uh, proposal, uh, portrayal in the movie was dramatic and fun, but that wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. Mark is interesting. He, he actually, so he's been described a lot as a learning machine. And he'll, you know, you go into his office, the, the aquarium with the glass walls or his home, and he's, he wants to learn from you. He wants to learn uh, what people are saying, and he'll ask you that. He has dinners in his home where he brings in people there. So he's gathering a lot of information before he makes his decisions when he's thinking where to, where to go with, with, with Facebook. Um, but so he's a sort of an empty slate in a sense that he, he, he's like a computer. He downloads all the information and then he makes his decisions. That's right. And one, but there are a few key principles and values he makes the decisions. One is he's a very competitive person. 
and that's something also he uh, who's he competing with now though he's he's the winner he's one well, of the richest men is he competing with jeff bezos is no, he competing it's not, with not, the not dead? competing not competing for you know status he's competing to make his company more more successful and to be more powerful you know uh power who does he look up to does he want to beat google does he want to beat Amazon? Does he want to beat Microsoft? I don't think he wants. He compares himself to other companies and says, "I'm getting my pleasure from being better than other company." He just doesn't want the the company to slow him down, and he'll have obsessions about different companies at different times. Um, there was a period where he had a Twitter obsession, and actually that had a very bad impact, I feel, on the newsfeed when he wanted the newsfeed to look more like Twitter, and he added real time. Uh, as a value in the algorithm of the newsfeed, and uh, that allowed for more viral uh, posts to spread and ultimately clear the path to fake news. How great a man do you think Zuckerberg is when you, 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 you've spent a lot of time with, with the greatest of all Silicon Valley figures, Steve Jobs, you spent time with Bill Gates, you, 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 you wrote the book on Google. Where is... Where is uh, Zuckerberg's place in the Silicon Valley Hall of Fame? I think definitely you would have to put his face up on the Mount Rushmore of Silicon Valley. What, with five or six others? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he built an amazing company and a huge, powerful company. It has an impact on all our lives. And not just in building Facebook, but understanding uh, where the, the threat was down the road and, and either neutralizing it or buying it. Like Instagram, he, he knew that photos was the most popular feature on Facebook. Here's someone else who figured out how to do photos in a social way that he wasn't doing it. So he either was going to have to compete with them down the road or own it. And he made a preemptive move that uh, they couldn't say no to and owned it. You um, you also wrote a very important and influential book about hacker culture. Is Zuckerberg the guy who has essentially brought the hacking principle, the hacking culture mainstream into American capitalism and American corporations? Uh, actually, I, I agree with that. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, no big business person has embraced the hacker label as passionately as Mark Zuckerberg. When he went public, when Facebook had its IPO, uh, the letter that Mark Zuckerberg wrote to shareholders had a section in there called The Hacker Way. It sounded actually like uh, he had read my book and he was repeating some of the things in there. Uh, and he talked about how uh, don't think of hackers as you know people who break into computers, but think of them as, as people who create amazing things uh, with their computers and come up with amazing solutions. And he was willing to embrace the hacker label. When you go to visit Facebook in one of their campuses, the classic campus uh, that used to be Sun's campus, there's a giant sign saying the hacker company. Uh, and there's even a hacker way on the campus. Yeah, yeah. That's, they renamed the street one hacker way. So, uh, so what's all, he done for, for for the hacker culture? Do you think that the the um, the, the the founders of, of hacking culture would they be pleased with what he's done, or is he essentially um, has he essentially undermined hacker culture by making such a huge personal fortune 
uh, and through some, some, so much other of the, the damage that Facebook has done to our politics and culture? Well, it's not just Zuckerberg, but I think there's been a movement over the last uh, decade where the uh, bias against enriching yourself from the fruits of hacking uh, you know, has, which was very much present in the early days of hacking, has gone away. Uh, in the startup culture, you go to Y Combinator, you know, it's this incubator that breeds startups, uh, and the, the hacker founder is the hero of those startups. Uh, it's okay to want to be a billionaire now and be a hacker. So uh, that tension has uh, gone away to some degree, uh, and Zuckerberg is, that, is, is the symbol of it. But, but, but isn't there an element, more than an element of hypocrisy there? Can you be a hacker? Can you be a, a multi-billionaire hacker and be at the same time credible? I think, you know, because uh, it's in the interest of hackers to do, to, to do so, certain hackers, uh, the answer is yes. You know, the, that, that's, that's part of what hackers encompasses now, for better or for worse. I, I don't think it's necessarily a great thing. So, Stephen, you're an excellent listener. You're a very reasonable fellow. What would you say? You're an excellent, <laughs> excellent that? you're an excellent <laughs> listener and you're a very reasonable fellow, which I think is one of the reasons why you're such an important uh, journalist, because you have the trust of, of people like Zuckerberg. So I'm sure you didn't tell him anything. But let's you've written the book, it's it's out there now. Um, what should Zuckerberg do to I wouldn't say save Facebook, but at least save books save Facebook's reputation? I think that, you know, look, I'm, 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 I, guess, I guess I have the answer. I'd be entitled to some of those billions. I, I think that lifting the foot off the accelerator and taking stock of what people's complaints are is certainly uh, something that would put Facebook in, in good stead. Isn't that but, obvious? But he hasn't the, done that? Are you suggesting that The thing is, that's the one thing that he won't do. That's not in his DNA. He still sees the problems with Facebook as you know, kind of an engineering issue. That There's these problems that we could fix it. It's going to take a long time. We're never going to 100% fix it. It's an ongoing struggle. But we always have to keep doing new things. Let me tell you one story. A couple of years ago, um, you know, I think it was 2018, at their annual developers conference, uh, it's called F8, which means fate they you know they, they gave you know have, have a different reason for that but everyone reads it as fate uh he facebook is in big troubles right after cambridge analytica and he wanted to spend half of his keynote talking about how facebook was going to win back your trust and the other half had to be how he was going to keep introducing new things because that's what facebook has to do and one of the things he was introducing was a dating feature and when he told me that, um, I almost fell off my chair and saying, "What? with all the criticism of Facebook and privacy, you're going to introduce a feature that gets the information about people, about their private life and who they want to date and the things that they're interested in when they want to find a mate? And I asked him about that, and he you know, said, well, you know, the, this is something that people like to do, and we've decided it's a good idea. And we went on another subject, and about five minutes later, he came back to the subject. He said, you really think there's a problem with that? And I said, well, yes. <laughs> well, the other problem, of course, which has come out quite recently, is that he's been having a lot of private dinners with Donald Trump. Is he in bed with Trump, do you think? 
Um, not literally, of course. I hope not. Uh, <laughs> well, he did have a private dinner with Trump. Um, and it, interestingly, it was on the eve of his appearance in Congress to defend Libra, Facebook's cryptocurrency product. Um, and they didn't announce that. Usually when he meets the, the Pope or some celebrity, um, he'll post it on his Facebook page. And he didn't post that. He kept quiet. I think he didn't want the people in Congress, uh, particularly Democrats, to see he was meeting with Trump, and then they would jump on him for that. Um, my personal suspicion, and this is not based on uh, re reporting, but you know, just the the the, the, the way the situation is unfolding, is that uh, he's hoping that the Trump administration is going to okay the regulatory you know rules for Libra. Um, and he won't have to go through Congress, which is very hostile to Mark now, uh, in order to get it approved. And when people in Congress asked him about that, he sort of ducked the question. Which is very troubling. I mean, Libra as a currency would replace the dollar. So what you're suggesting is that Zuckerberg was talking to Trump so that they could both circumvent um, the, the central bank in order to turn the American currency into Facebook Libra? I mean, that's, that's well, chilling, that's, that's, isn't it? That's not exactly the way I describe Libra, but I think that basically, I don't think he was sitting there down there and, and explaining to Donald Trump about how the blockchain works, but more getting a personal connection. So when Facebook's uh, people met with regulators to get Libra approved, without really knowing what, what Libra was, you know, Trump would put the word out saying, hey, let this go through. Do you think that Zuckerberg was in his, and I'm quoting you, his sponge mode with, with Donald Trump? Was he listening to everything Donald Trump was saying and somehow incorporating it? I think he was nodding politely. <laughs> and what was going on in his mind? This guy's a lunatic. Well, just taking in the information. What, what, what's going to help me out? Finally, Stephen, step back a little bit. Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg, his parents. What, what, not so much of a moral story, but what does Facebook's central role in the early 21st century capitalist economy tell us about the architecture of capitalism in, 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 in our times? Well, there's two things that are working hand in hand. One is the architecture of, of capitalism, which you know has a destructive element as companies become more and more powerful and a then, winner take all world basically right right but it's accelerated by the arrow of technology by the, the technology which you know allows scale to be achieved much quicker and much more thoroughly so when you mix those things together you get a, a situation where as in the case of facebook a company can grow from a dorm room to the most powerful uh, collection, the most powerful network of people that the world has ever seen in 15 years. But what, what does that say? It's, it, is, is, should it be a warning? Is it something we should celebrate? No, it, it, well, it, it certainly is something that we should uh, take heed of it in that it's very easy to get to the situation where things grow and you know uh reach a, you know, a, a 
a massive, massive stage with, with huge impact way before any consequences are contemplated. We even understand what the consequences are. You've been studying Facebook now. We've been researching this book for a few years. Final, final question. Obviously, it's very hard to speculate, but where would you imagine Facebook will be in, in 2025 or 2030? I think it'll, it'll, it'll morph to a lot of the properties there. What's known as the Facebook family, Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, <clears throat> uh, perhaps Oculus will start to make an impact in five years, maybe a little more. Um, but I, I, I think you'll see it more as, as one family rather than seeing Facebook, what's known as Facebook Blue, as something separate. And they've been making branding moves to signal that right now. I, I think definitely... Uh, there won't be fewer people on the Facebook family, in the Facebook world. And more or less creepy by 2025. Will mm -hmm. Facebook be, to many people at least, will it seem a larger threat to civilization, to democracy? I think it might be seen more creepy by the way we look at things in 2020. But, but the scary thing is by 2025, we might not think it's creepy. It'll just be our world. And Zuckerberg himself, will he... Will he um Will you get a better haircut by 2025? <laughs> uh, I think you'd have to ask Priscilla. I'm going to blame her on that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast, it's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future. It's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.